Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. From the start of this dreadful conflict, the empire the British built has failed to conquer a small nation of highly mobile and motivated Boers. It's the end of May 1900, and for the first time, though, in seven months, the empire's great army in South Africa, under the command of Lord Roberts, has begun to roll back the Boer defences. But that is only because the Boers wished it so, knowing that facing this huge central army of close to 60,000, with fewer than 15,000 men, would be suicide. While Wim Paul Kruger, the Transvaal president, believed God was on his side, there was only so many miracles that could be prayed for, and defeating this vast army was pushing the Boers' luck and their reliance on miracles. This episode is going to concentrate on the minutiae of the British army surrounding the city of gold, Johannesburg. It's the city that was the main cause of this war, with its gold and eightlanders or immigrants, who were mainly English-speaking and had demanded the right to vote in the Transvaal. It was Kruger who denied them this vote, knowing that his government would disappear under the weight of the numbers of eightlander men and women who were colonials through and through, and his culture would end. That was the belief. For black Johannesburgers who lived under the harsh Calvinistic overtones of the Boer rule, it was the possibility of freedom that beckoned. Little did they know that the British would impose far stricter rule on blacks than the Boers. And in fact, the British adherence to their imperial bureaucracy meant that the weak control over black movement, for example, would be beefed up with the arrival of the super-efficient British Empire. So, as the townships of the Witwatersrand echoed with happy sounds, as black residents waited in expectation for the British arrival, the Boer administrators were rushing to empty the city of its valuables. Twenty-six kilometres away, to the southwest, Roberts was coming to visit. The main song sung by troops in his army was, We're marching to Pretoria, which became a clarion call and a morale booster during tough times. The pattern of the advance rarely faltered, and surprised even Lord Roberts and one of the most famous war reporters riding alongside Winston Churchill. He'd already been imprisoned and then escaped from Pretoria, only to return to report for the Morning Post newspaper on the battle since. However, Churchill was beginning to have his doubts about the British role in this war which is a bit of a shocker, because the full frontal imperialists, such as Rudyard Kipling and Arthur Conan Doyle, were filling pages of notebooks with purple prose full of British heroes and Boer ne'er-do-wells. Churchill was now counting the cost as his fellow countrymen continued to die and were buried across the length and breadth of South Africa, and he also began to realise that this war was actually not about honour and dignity in defending the righteous empire, but it was about the cold cynicism of capitalism. Particularly Churchill, where he watches more frontal assaults by troops who are deemed expendable by their leadership just so they can bravely report back to the HQ that men seemed unperturbed by the possibility of death and ran directly towards Boer guns. It suddenly dawns on this future hero of the Second World War that war is hell and every man's death is a calamity. The enemy of the British had also been both the Boer guns and the felt or plains of South Africa, and what at the time was called Dingaan's Revenge, or Typhoid. 
This disease had followed Robert's army like a dark, evil angel, always tapping on the shoulders of the men, and by the time Roberts arrived on the outskirts of Johannesburg, more men had died from this disease than Boer bullets. The great column curled itself up every night like a caterpillar, then stretched itself out every day to crawl wagon after wagon, horse after horse, and moved mountains of dust into the air as it shuffled quickly north. Field Marshal Lord Roberts rode in his small covered wagon, which was the mobile HQ, and he was anxious. His army was marching at prodigious speed, but the Boers were retreating quicker. They were demoralized, but their rearguard action was never a rout, and Roberts was frustrated that all he managed to see at times would be a small group of Boer horsemen on a hilltop. Then they were gone. Or the smoke of the Boers blasting the railway bridges to the north, and at times, in the distance, a Boer train making its getaway. Roberts and his trusty adviser, Ian Hamilton, believed implicitly that they were on the final march to victory, which was imminent. Hamilton, in particular, thought that by taking Johannesburg and then Pretoria, they would deal a fatal blow to the Boers, who would then give up, accept British role, and go back to their farms learning English like good members of the empire. This preconception was going to cost a good deal many more lives in this onerous war. Roberts rejected the alternative of negotiating with General Christian de Vett, who was now behind the British lines, along with around 7,000 armed men. President Steyn of the Orange Free State Republic had also refused to negotiate, even though technically he was no longer in possession of his country. Roberts thought he dealt with the men under General de Vett by leaving 20,000 of his soldiers dotted along the route, protecting bridges and other key points from Boer attack. They were also systematically disarming Boers and removing horses and other strategic livestock, while apparently avoiding looting. As I explained, looting was taking place where the British believed Boer farms were being used directly by the commandos. However, at this point, unlike later in the war, it was not a consistent scorched-earth policy. The reason Roberts had ordered a passive approach is easy to understand. He thought that by showing, through a form of hearts and minds campaign, that the British were civilized, it would make it harder for the militant Boer leaders like de Vett and de la Rey to mobilize their own men. Roberts also wanted to avoid as much bloodshed as possible on his own side, and he wanted now to avoid a major battle. This had changed. Earlier in the war, he was itching to have a single showdown, but now realized that he was winning and that the Boers would give up once Pretoria was taken. So why press the issue of battling? The British were approaching Johannesburg from three main fronts. On the left or the west was Colonel Mahon's flying column, around 80 kilometers outside Johannesburg, marching from Mafeking, which had seen its 217-day siege lifted. And far away, to the southeast, General Redverse Buller was making good headway through the Biggersburg Mountains north of Ladysmith. Roberts maintained a crushing superiority across a broad front covering over 500 kilometers, despite the 20,000 men he'd left in the Free State. 8,000 others were with Hunter along the Vaal River as a kind of backstop, and 30,000 men were in his central column with 20,000 others with Buller. So the first attempt at trapping the Boers across the Vaal River had failed, and Roberts then gave up the idea as he felt pinning down the Boers and causing them to fight to the death would be extremely bloody and leave him with unnecessary casualties. He was gambling on the future, and unluckily for him, the dice was loaded. 
His own troops were going hungry at times, despite the large number of wagons and railway carriages in support. That's because of an Irish brigade fighting for the Boers called the Wreckers' Call. These Irish were gifted in blowing things up, particularly bridges, and destroyed every single bridge and culvert on the railway line between Kronstadt in the Free State and Johannesburg. There are characters in this corps whom I'll describe in a future podcast. 40 kilometers east of Kronstadt, Ian Hamilton was loving the ride. He commanded two infantry brigades, including the 1st Battalion and his own regiment, the Gordon Highlanders from Scotland. Alongside Hamilton rode a dashing assistant, the Duke of Marlborough, and alongside Marlborough rode his first cousin, Winston Churchill. This was an iconic group of the Empire's best. Hamilton, though, had a smashed wrist which dangled from the end of his arm, courtesy of a Boer bullet fired at him during the Battle of Majuba, where the Gordons had been lacerated by the Boers, and he had never had the opportunity to make them pay for both his disability and his dishonour after being forced to surrender. Hamilton was the beau ideal of the warrior, and he was even painted in full military dress by the great artist Sargent. Hamilton had been promoted to Lieutenant General recently by Lord Roberts, commanding a force of 15,000 men and 38 guns, and he was loving the open-air opera. He had been trapped in Ladysmith for months, surrounded by Boers, and he was thirsting for revenge after being forced to live like a rat in a trench in that cursed Natal town. During the march on the right flank or east of Lord Roberts's main army, Hamilton and Churchill had entered a small town called Lindley, which in many ways symbolised this war. It was the town in the middle of nowhere, with two shops owned by Englishmen, but the residents were Boers. Lindley would also become symbolic, as it would be a place where the De Vette family got its revenge. Right now, Hamilton had arrived and looked around. A messenger rode up and pronounced that Christian De Vette's brother, Piet, wanted to surrender with more than a thousand burghers. In exchange, Piet de Vett wanted a guarantee that he would not be sent to Robben Island as a prisoner. That's the island off Cape Town, which was to become much more famous later, where Nelson Mandela was incarcerated by the descendants of the Boers. More typically South African irony here. Hamilton thought Piet de Vett's suggestion was an excellent idea, but was told by HQ that Roberts would have none of it. He had no authority to make terms. Hamilton then left Lindley with Christian de Vette snapping at his heels and lost 59 men in a skirmish involving his rearguard. General Colville was left behind in this godforsaken town to mop up de Vette, but his plan went awry, as we'll hear in the next podcast. On the 26th of May 1900, Hamilton crossed the Vaal, slightly behind Roberts, who then switched Hamilton's unit from the east to the west of his main column. Roberts laid out his map during bivouacs and took a close look at possible defensive positions. His plan was simple enough. Two mobile columns of 20,000 men, led by French and Hamilton, would swing around the west of the City of Gold and cut the main road to Krugersdorp and Florida. Meanwhile, his main force, roughly the same size as Hamilton's at 20,000, would move east or to the right of Johannesburg, outflanking the Boers, a kind of double-horned tactic so loved by Shaka Zulu and Alexander the Great. As this great army rolled over the felt, Hamilton's Western Brigade came across a large group of Boers at Durenkop. 
This was a small town on the edge of the gold mining area, but already had a history deeply etched in both the Boer and British memory. It was where the much-hated Jamison Raiders had surrendered five years before in their vain attempt at overthrowing the Boer Republic. The Boers were dug in along a high ridge alongside a small white farmhouse in sight of the gold mining chimneys of Krugersdorp. It was the same farmhouse from where Jamison had emerged in 1896 holding a white flag, his dishonour complete. Now Hamilton, his limp wrist flapping against the saddle, thought it was time for a little payback for both dishonour and disability. Here another curious fact needs to be mentioned. Part of Hamilton's force was made up of the Lord Mayor of London's famous gift to the nation, the City Imperial Volunteer, or CIV. They were all Londoners. Hamilton thought it necessary to give the CIV the place of honour in the front of the battle line as he drew up his men to attack the Boers on the ridge. At first, Hamilton's plan appeared clever. He would use General French's feared cavalry joined by his two mountain infantry units to outflank the small Boer component on the ridge, and they'd probably surrender once they realised they were trapped. However, French did not advance far enough, and once again the British misunderstood the lie of the land. After his force began to move, Hamilton then pulled off a shocking manoeuvre that Winston Churchill admitted later was completely unnecessary. He ordered his central column to charge the hill in a tactic that the British had stopped using owing to the Boer ability to shoot many dead before they themselves withdrew, the fish-in-the-barrel scenario. Churchill had witnessed on several occasions how Redverse Buller in Natal had attempted a similar charge with disastrous results, including the battles of Colenso and Spioncorp. So, one of the last set-piece battles of the Anglo-Boer War was about to take place, and it was, as with many others, a waste of human life. The charge that followed with CIV and the Gordon Highlanders sprinting up the hillside was magnificent, if you like the idea of honourable men being regarded as expendable by their leader. Lieutenant March Phillips, and yes, he was really called March, had fought at Graspan, Marcusfontein, and other battles in the west of South Africa and wrote, this was the finest performance I have seen of the whole campaign. While the men were separated from each other by around 15 metres, they were still being led by commanders like Hamilton, who did it by the book, which meant walk straight towards people shooting at you. Soon the quick crack of the Moors could be heard, and in a similar manner to the terrible incidents on the Western Front in Europe in the First World War a few years hence, men began to drop. Puffs of dust heralded the hundreds of rounds flying into the groups of Scots and Londoners. Crucially, the Boers had burnt the felt below the ridge so that there would be no protection for the attackers and they would be clearly visible against the black soot in the light brown khaki. A masterstroke of using the felt to your own advantage. Men staggered and fell and then the twinkling of the fixed bayonets could be seen. Surely the Boers were done for. The British charged to the top of the ridge but once more... The Boers were not to be taken lightly. It was dusk, and most of the Boers had managed to ride away, leaving more than a hundred British dead and wounded. Hamilton then ordered a halt for the night as the Boer riders thundered away across the felt to the northeast, and the cavalry were unable, as usual, to make any headway. The next morning, Churchill visited the spot where the slaughter had taken place, which was a hollow between two crest lines. 
The Boers had taken advantage of this false crest as usual, and the Highlanders and CIV units charging up the first crest were taken by surprise as the Boers fell back to their second line of defence well before they could be taken prisoner or fight hand to hand. The next day, Churchill managed to stop and interview one of the Gordon Highlanders who was close by. The man had fought on the Indian frontier and was thus highly experienced, and he said, Well, you see, sir, we were tricked. We began to lose men as soon as we got on the burnt grass. Then we made our charge up to this first line of little rocks, thinking the Boers were there. Of course, they weren't here at all, but back over there, where you see those big rocks. We knew we was in for it then. It didn't look like getting on, and we couldn't get back. Never a man would have lived to cross the black ground again with the fire where it was. Churchill was taken aback and asked, What was done? What did you do? Why, go on, sir, and take that other line, the big rocks. Soon as we got our breath, it had to be done. Then Churchill saw the melancholy sight of the eighteen dead men lying side by side, their boots removed, their stiff legs ending in grey socks in the morning light. Churchill became angry and thought this could not be a war that was killing patriots, that was about gold. He had believed it was about an ideal, a philosophy involving right and wrong, that his countrymen had been denied the vote in the Transvaal Republic, but this unnecessary killing so close to the gold mines of Johannesburg caused him to reflect otherwise. Churchill was enamoured by Hamilton, the dashing golden boy that Lord Roberts had set loose on the western flank. The CIV, though, had suffered fewer casualties than the Gordon Highlanders. But how? Well, for those interested in the minute of military strategy, this will be of interest. It's unclear exactly why, but the Londoners had employed a technique that is now used throughout the world's armies, a modern idea. Small groups rush forward while the rest lay down supporting fire. And thus, in small bursts, these relatively inexperienced men had done what the highly experienced and historical unit, the Gordon Highlanders, could not. They had helped take the ridge without the high casualty rate of 18 killed and 80 wounded that the Highlanders suffered. Pity the British command forgot this in World War I, where once more men were ordered to march straight towards machine guns. Later, Hamilton was forced to defend his bloodthirsty charge, and he told Churchill and others it was for three reasons. Firstly, he thought that the enemy's line was weaker than it was. Second, his men were short of rations, and he was worried about an extended fight. And third, he was afraid of dividing the men as they attacked. But that was stretching the truth. The real reason why Hamilton charged the Boers is that he'd wanted revenge for his useless hand dangling from a shattered wrist, and he wanted to fight to redeem the Gordon Highlanders' white flags that flown from a juba. Nothing is more personal than love and war. Later, after Flanders, the Somme, Ypres and Mons in the First World War, British army historians would repeat what Hamilton's admirers wrote now, that the dead were an example of the disciplined British soldier, indifferent to losses around them, carrying on the glorious traditions of the British infantry. While this terrible small battle was being waged, Lord Roberts's central column had managed to make it to Elonsfontein, around 12 kilometres east of Johannesburg city centre. Here, a rather incongruous situation developed at a railway siding near the famous Simmer and Jack gold mine. 
That mine was still operating, and on its small railway line trains were shunting in and out of the station. Smoke was rising from the mine chimneys. Suddenly, the Boers, who were hidden on the mine dumps, opened fire on Roberts's column as women screamed and bullets pattered on the tin-roofed buildings. The citizens and the soldiers who'd marched up in the vanguard hid behind brick walls and between the wheels of the trains as the bullets whizzed, hissed, and buzzed down the street. Minutes later, the dead were lying around the station on both sides, blood oozing onto the ground, while the children and the women nearby screamed as they ran hither and thither through the carnage. It was late in the afternoon when the Boers withdrew and the shooting match ended. A few dozen people were dead and wounded, and that night the column's fires could be seen through the gum trees east of Johannesburg, which, by the way, are still there. These trees had been grown by the mining companies for pit props. It was now only a few kilometres into Johannesburg, but there was just one more small historical curiosity, which we will investigate. And once again, it involved the bumptious Winston Churchill. It was now Wednesday, the 30th of May, 1900, and he was stationed with Hamilton awaiting orders from Roberts. But there was no telegraph line to Johannesburg from Florida. It had been destroyed, and two couriers that had been sent the day before had actually been forced south as the Boers had been spotted. So Hamilton was in a quandary about his next move. Should he stay, or should he go? He was stuck at a small town called Florida near Durenkop, and as he mused about his next steps, Churchill arrived. The Morning Post correspondent had completed his next story and wanted to send it back to London, but there was no telegraph. So as Hamilton considered his next move, two cyclists arrived after lunch. One was a Frenchman called Monsieur Lotre and Martin Bossenbroek, the famous Dutch historian who won his country's history prize in 2013 for his book The Boer War, tracked what happened next from original documents, Churchill's memoirs, and newspaper reports. So Churchill wanted to file his report from a telegraph office in Johannesburg, and Hamilton looked at him for a second, and then agreed, as long as he took a message to Lord Roberts. Thus the Frenchman Lotre and the Englishman Churchill cycled to Johannesburg together on the afternoon of the 30th of May, both pretending to be French supporters of the Boers. As they rode to the southeast of the city, three armed Boers loomed up in front of the intrepid cyclists who muttered to the Boers, Encore en boue! But one of the horsemen slowed down, then turned and rode up to Churchill and Lotre, and stared directly at the English war correspondent, who recalled the incident later. He had a pale, almost ghastly visage, peering ill-favoured and cruel from beneath a slouch hat with a large white feather. Churchill admits to shivering at the phantom-like horseman before the man spurred his horse and disappeared in the gathering dusk. The two eventually arrived at Germiston to the southeast of Johannesburg, only a few kilometres away now, and dined in a hotel. Churchill then filed his story to the Morning Post from the telegraph office. Then they continued riding in the night and eventually arrived at Lord Roberts's HQ at 10.30. The aide-de-camp took Hamilton's message from the two and disappeared, only to reappear a few minutes later and ask they follow and meet Lord Roberts. He was aware of Churchill's bumptiousness and imprisonment then escape. After all, he was the son of Randolph Churchill, the well-known Conservative MP, and the war correspondent, who was nervous and expecting a tirade as he stood before the slightly built field marshal. However, all was forgiven. 
So we're about to enter Johannesburg with Lord Roberts and soon Pretoria will fall. Churchill will revisit his old jail in Pretoria and actually help free those incarcerated, which is another unlikely but true story. I'll end here with the British cock-a-hoop and the Boers reconsidering their strategy. We'll see next week how Pete de Vet turns from zero to hero as he captures 500 British troops at Langley, but the capital will fall. So please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps the folks managing podcasts in America to view our story from Africa seriously. Also, check out the website at abwarpodcast.com or you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die oud transval, daar waar my sare